Hey, Kev, let's let's follow this trail over here. This looks like there might be something waiting down there. All right. Hey, wait a minute. Do you hear that? Yeah, I thought it was just me. What the heck is that? I don't know what that is. Whoa, do you smell that, too? That's unbelievable. Hey, look. What the? Hey, look, those, those branches are moving over there. What the heck is that? Holy cow, is that what I think it is? Look at that thing. It, oh my god. It's a freaking Sasquatch. Welcome to the Bigfoot Terror in the Woods Sightings and Encounters podcast. I'm your host, W.J. Sheehan. Hello, everybody, and may I once again welcome you to what is going to be a spectacular podcast. My name is W.J. Sheehan, author of the series of books, Bigfoot, Terror in the Woods, Sightings and Encounters, all of which are available, volumes one through eight, at Amazon in ebook and paperback format. So please buy a bucket full. And if you're an audiophile, you could pick up volumes one through six at Audible, iTunes, and Amazon as well. So please partake of the offerings. And now may I introduce my brother and co-host, KJ Sheehan. Kevin, how are you? I'm good. How about you, Bill? I'm doing marvelous, marvelous. We're a third of the way or half the way through January by the time this podcast goes. And uh, so far, so good. (laughs) (laughs) How do you measure that? Not too cold, not too snowy? My measurement is strictly on the snow meter. If there's no (laughs) snow, it's great. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> We're looking for some snow down here. It's always uh, a treat, you know, because we, uh, we totally shut down when it snows. So, Oh, yeah, everybody just collapses for a day. Yeah, I mean, like we like to say, we do have a snow plow. <laughs> <laughs> the entire town has one plow. The city of Raleigh has one snow plow, I think. Yeah. And well, you know, you know up here, Kev, everybody's expected to do everything they do every other day right. and on time. Uh, in spite of having to dig out of the snow and slipping and sliding and everything else. Absolutely. Yeah. So. Uh, Different in, down here. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, up here, no go. So what do you have, my brother, in our cryptids in the news and other oddities segment for today? Yes. We're going to go into some creepy, supernatural, perhaps evil legends. <laughs> What do you mean, perhaps evil? It's definitely evil, but I didn't want to give the <laughs> ending away. <laughs> we haven't yeah. talked about this cryptid before. All right. So we're going to talk about the Wendigo. Oh, yeah, that's a nasty uh, little bugger. You know this creature? Well, I believe the Wendigo is a type of, uh, is it Wendigo or Wendigo? Wendigo. Wendigo. Yeah. Uh, it, it's purported to be a type of shapeshifter, isn't it? Yeah, it's a, you know, typically described as a supernatural being. 
Right. And uh, it comes from the spiritual traditions of the Algonquin First Nations people of North America. Now, the Algonquins, Kev, they were up here in the Northeast, weren't they? Northeast, yeah. Mostly around, uh, like, Quebec and Western Ontario, but I think they came down into, uh, like, Upper New York State, Vermont, etc., too. Okay. Yeah, somehow in my vague history memory... I remember hearing something about the Algonquins. Yeah, in, I think uh, we learned about them when we were back in school in New York, you know, because it's yep. one of the familiar ones to me. Yep, yep, too. definitely. Although, I don't remember learning about the Wendigo. Uh, no, they did not teach about the Wendigo <laughs> in the Sachem School District, as I recall. Even though it's named after a Native American chief. Right, right. Well, they, you know, they always tried to keep it kind of clean. You know what I mean? <laughs> you didn't really get the nuts and bolts of what was going on when you were a kid, you know? We didn't get the supernatural, cannibalistic, red-eyed beasts. Now, tell me something, Kev. Would not it have been cool to insert such stuff into your teaching to draw in this young, active audience to something Strange and bizarre, a little more interesting, you know? I would have sat up a little straighter in my chair if we were talking <laughs> about this. Exactly, you know, this is what I'm getting at. You know? Might not have been able to sleep either, depending on how old I was. <laughs> so what do you got, man? What's going yeah, on so with Yeah, so these creatures, uh, and by the way, a lot of what I'm talking about today came from a website uh, called the Canadian Encyclopedia. I read a bunch of stuff, but they got some pretty cool stuff there and some images uh, from some of the museums up in Canada that, of course, I'll post on my webs- on our website, uh, BigfootTerrorInTheWoods.com. That's awesome. Yeah. And these legends, uh, it's typically humans that transform into these Wendigos because of their greed or because of their weakness. So it's kind of like they're susceptible because of greed, right? Or they're just generally weak. Uh, and and probably turning to the wrong thing for help is my interpretation. Wow! So they yeah. uh, they become the victim, exactly, and oh. uh, they 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 then become very <clears throat> excuse me very dangerous because these creatures are uh, they have a tremendous thirst for blood, and by the way, it's human blood. And they are uh, very much rumored to be cannibalistic. Nice combination. <laughs> nice. I told you it was a little <laughs> creepy. <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and I said uh, people are susceptible if they're uh, corrupted by greed, you know, which is true of a lot of things today in our society, uh, or weak. And some of the things that the First Nations people talk about contributing to weakness are extreme conditions such as hunger or extreme cold. Okay. Yeah. And, and, uh, oh, go these, ahead. Uh, well, no, I was going to say something, but let me let you continue for a minute. No, I'll, I'll finish it off. Sure, sure. And then, you know, it's interesting here, Bill, a little bit like, you know, evil uh, demons or demons oh. of sorts. Some of the legends say that the humans become se- susceptible to becoming a Wendigo when possessed by a prowling spirit during a moment of weakness. 
You know, and really, uh, that's the way it is, uh, even in uh, Christianity terminology. When well, that's somebody- what I was thinking of as I was reading about this. Like, you know, who are the who are the most susceptible to you know uh, uh, a demonic type thing? Right. Right. You know, you're you're weak. You're you're uh, wishing for, you know, anything to happen. You know, be careful when you wish for anything to happen. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, you may be turning to the wrong place for help. And then, of course, greed, power, corruption, you know, mm-hmm. not a lot of good things can come out of that. Yeah, it's amazing, too, that, you know, all of this stuff has been around as long as man has been on the earth. So apparently the Indians were experiencing such things themselves, and uh, they had these beliefs relative to the Wendigo about uh, what could happen to an individual that, you know, uh, swayed from the right to the wrong, shall we say. Exactly. Well put. Well put. So what do you think these things look like, Uh, you may ask? So a lot of different descriptions out there. But they're typically uh, view, you know, described as being kind of human-like, but uh, very, uh, very thin, with like the skeleton pushing through its skin. Oy. Yeah, ashen-colored, uh, <laughs> and like a, a transparent-like skin. Ugh. Yeah, how's that for you? Well, you know what it reminds me of right off the bat of those old creepy movie clips of Nosferatu. Ah, good point. Remember yeah. the early Dracula? He wasn't yeah. like the handsome Bella Lugosi guy. No, well, you got to remember with Dracula, he's supposed to be a thousand years old, you know, so you're not looking too good after a thousand years. <laughs> Unless you take your vitamins. Also, <laughs> <laughs> like 700 years, Bill. <laughs> that last 300 is tough. Well, as they say in Great Britain, vitamins. Vitamins. <laughs> <laughs> So, so according to some of the other legends and descriptions, it, it also has pointed ears, you know, like <laughs> kind of like a wolf ear. Yeah. And then some of the pictures you see of this, uh, pictures, sketches and stuff, it has horns or like antlers coming from its head as well. Yeah. yeah I have you... a picture of one on the wall here that my daughter gave me, and it does have antlers coming out of its head. Yeah, you know, you're painting the picture for me now, and it's coming back to me. Uh, I've I've seen this before, uh, as you're describing it, and that is a nasty-looking vision. Oh, yeah. And by the way, it does have red, glowing eyes. Oh, of course. Why wouldn't it? Well, you know, just saying. <laughs> oh, you my know, it's, goodness. It's also described to have uh, very strong strength. Uh, and uh, are very strong senses, so uh, very, very skilled at stalking its victims uh, as it comes up and uh, wants to devour its victims. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> now, Beautiful. Uh, did they believe this was a flesh and blood creature? I mean, it would have to be flesh and blood if it could devour somebody. 
they, you know, they, they they talk about it both ways. You know, definitely flesh and blood that it does. It is cannibalistic. And everything I read about it, cannibalistic. You know, it eats people. Mm-hmm. Um, but they do talk about it like when people see it, that it's not leaving footprints and things like that. So it's kind of a combo. What would you call that, Bill? What would I call it? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, it could be a demon taking the shape of this thing and then tearing people apart, right? You know. Yeah, that could be. Yeah, well, you know, uh, even in uh, my own faith, uh, there are uh, entities that can take both good and bad. There are entities that can take on human form. Uh, you know, where you could shake their hand and they're real. They've got clothes on. They exactly. can walk. Exactly. You know, so this is this is nothing new. You know. Yep. No, no doubt about it. That is creepy, man. Super creepy creature, though. And again, I'll put some of the images up. So it's interesting. There's a couple of accounts. Um, The first European written account of a Wendigo sighting was by a Jesuit missionary, right? So a man of the cloth Mm -hmm. named Paul Lajeune. And he lived with the Algonquin people in the early 17th century. Okay. Right? In, in, in and around what's now known as Quebec. Okay. So in eastern Canada. And in a report that he wrote to his uh, superiors in the church in 1636, he wrote, This devilish woman had eaten some Algonquin. And he says, These are the tribes that live north of the river that is called Three Rivers. Huh. And that he would eat a great many more of them if he were not called elsewhere. Yeah. And, uh, you know, what's interesting here is that his report, you know, going back to his superiors, right, you know, show that he had a very strong belief in these supernatural uh, creatures, just like the First Nations people, you know, that he was living among. So had to have something that brought him to think of these other than just legend uh, well yeah and he's yeah. A, a a catholic friar right up up there trying to convert uh first nations people to christianity exactly and he's coming across this what did he say it was a woman at first he describes it as a woman and then as it's killing things he talks about it as he yeah i mean yeah. you know he's obviously aware of people being eaten yeah. by this, at the very least, crazed person or being, whatever you want to call it. Yep. Wow. Yeah, at the very least. You know. Yeah. And what's oh. pretty interesting from a timing standpoint, you know, so this, his, uh, you know, his report back to his superiors predates the Salem witch trials by about 60 years. So it wasn't like they were hearing about the witches and the witch trials, because it's pretty close by, right, in Quebec. And then they started to imagine this stuff. This stuff actually predates the uh, Salem witch trials. Yeah, and I don't know if during the Salem witch trials it was men of the cloth that were condemning these women. I think it was more uh, 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 townspeople and, quote, judges uh, laying the boom down upon these uh, these women, you know? Yeah, yeah. And but, by the uh, way, no witches were harmed in this podcast. 
the witches are very active at writing letters to us, so <laughs> we don't we don't want to cause any trouble with them. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And then if you go out in the western frontier of you know what today is the U.S., the indigenous people out there and some of the employees of the Hudson Bay Company, right? You remember them, the the early fur traders that would go out west and get the beaver pelts and stuff like that. Right. They would talk about um, indigenous people who were accused of becoming Wendigos. Wow. Yeah. And this was where? Out in the Western Plains. Of yeah. The US. yeah. Yeah. Probably see, the Western Plains of Canada, too. You know, so kind of uh, up North Dakota, north of North Dakota, up in Canada, Alberta, places like that. Yeah, now we don't have great records of of this uh, phenomena, but that's where I remember hearing about it from was out in the Plains states. Oh, okay, yeah, and that's where I came up with this uh, shapeshifter thing. But you know, it was in fact called a name. Lots of times when we talk about shapeshifter, they just use the term shapeshifter. Yeah, well, but, there are a ton of names for uh, Wendigo. Um, you know, and a lot of them I won't even attempt to pr- pronounce. But were were any of them named W J? No W Js that I came across. Ah, shucks. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, you shapeshifter, you. <laughs> and uh, you know, it's interesting. So, so uh, the the term Wendigo also, you know, in closing here, it made its way into the early 20th century as a term that was used by psychiatrists uh, to review, to, to, to refer to uh, a mental condition where patients felt possessed by another being and expressed cannibalistic desires. And they, this was like a phenomenon that... Yeah, they'd call they- it Wendigo psychosis. Isn't that weird? Yeah, I've never heard of had- it before. They adopted it to describe, you know, it's weird the way there must have been a lot of activity around this for the, quote, medical community yeah, to adopt. Yeah, it's not definitely not a pocket, you know, of activity that we're only learning about now or something like that. You know, this is legend that goes on and on and on. Yeah. And of course, the medical community back then was nothing, you know, like we have now, you know. Uh, I guess these folks were doing the best they could at the time with the knowledge they had and whatever, quote, medicines they had available. But Oh, yeah. I mean, we're still discovering better ways to treat all of these different types of uh, illnesses, mental and otherwise. Yeah, no, like me. I always found when I'm hungry, pizza does it. <laughs> yeah, you know, if I'm hungry, three or four slices, I'm good. Yeah, my problem is after three or four slices, I'm still hungry. <laughs> That's when you turn into a Wendigo and start gnawing on your neighbor. <laughs> hey, I'm hungry, Bob. Sorry. Watch ah! out. Watch out. So, again, great uh, great stuff. You know, again, a lot of what I talked about came uh, from an article in the Canadian Encyclopedia written by a gentleman named Steve Pitt. Um, and uh, he, he kind of put the whole picture together better than uh, what I saw other places. So good good stuff. Yeah, that's really interesting, Kev. And uh, 
I've got something really interesting as well. Whoop. 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 When I get up, Johnny, run for your life. Come get some! Bang, bang. You're dead, sucker. The following story that I'm going to share with you tonight. Hey, wait a minute, Bill. Did somebody sneak into your house? <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> Machine Gun Kelly. <laughs> Didn't mean to interrupt you, but, you know, there was some serious gunfire going on there. Well, you know, Kev, it's as I always say. Always carry more machine gun <laughs> than you think you're going to need. All right. Well, get back to it then. <laughs> <laughs> now, this uh, story that I'm going to read to you guys tonight is actually one that my brother and I did, I think, in episode one or two when we got the ball rolling with this podcast. And it's actually one of my favorites. And you know what my feelings are, that there's always new people coming in and we should be rehashing some things that really are at the forefront of uh, this investigation of Bigfoot, Sasquatch, the hairy man, whatever we want to call it. And uh, let me grab this book here. Hold on. It's a little bit tricky for me. I'm sitting at the microphone and I'm actually grabbing a 125-year-old book to share this story with you tonight. Now, this came out of uh, President Teddy Roosevelt's book, The Wilderness Hunter. Uh, the copy that I have in my possession here is from the late 1800s. And this story was more commonly known as the Bauman Encounter. And I'm going to dive right into this, and, and then my brother and I will... Uh, have added in a discussion afterwards as to what exactly went on here and why this may have been in a soon-to-be president's uh, book of his adventures hunting. I once listened to a goblin story which rather impressed me. It was told by a grizzled, weather-beaten old mountain hunter named Bauman who was born and had passed all his life on the frontier. He must have believed what he said, for he could hardly repress a shudder at certain points of the tale. He was of German ancestry, and in childhood had doubtless been saturated with all kinds of ghost and goblin lore, so that many fearsome superstitions may be latent in his mind. Besides, he knew well the stories told by the Indian medicine men in their winter camps of the snow walkers, the specters, and the formless evil beings that haunt the forest depths, and dog and waylay the lowly wanderer who after nightfall passes through the regions where they lurk. 
and it may be that when overcome by the horror of the fate that befell his friend, and when oppressed by the awful dread of the unknown, he grew to attribute, both at the time and still more in remembrance, weird and elfin traits to what was merely some abnormally wicked and cunning wild beast. But whether this was so or not, no man can say. When the event occurred, Bauman was still a young man and was trapping with a partner among the mountains dividing the forks of the salmon from the head of the Wisdom River. Not having had much luck, he and his partner determined to go up into a particularly wild and lonely pass, through which ran a small stream said to contain many beaver. The pass had an evil reputation because the year before, a solitary hunter who had wandered into it was there slain, seemingly by a wild beast, the half-eaten remains being afterwards found by some mining prospectors who had passed his camp only the night before. The memory of this event, however, weighed very lightly with the two trappers, who were as adventurous and hardy as others of their kind. They took their two lean mountain ponies to the foot of the pass, where they left them in an open beaver meadow, the rocky timber-clad ground being from thence onwards impracticable for such horses. Then they struck out on foot through the vast gloomy forest, and in about four hours reached a little open glade where they concluded to camp, as signs of game were plenteous. There was still an hour or two of daylight left, and after building a brush lean-to and throwing down and opening their packs, they started upstream. The country was very dense and hard to travel through, as there was much down timber, although here and there the somber woodland was broken by small glades of mountain grass. At dusk, they again reached camp. The glade in which it was pitched was not many yards wide, the tall, close-set pines and firs rising round it like a wall. On one side was a little stream, beyond which rose the steep mountain slopes, covered with the unbroken growth of the evergreen forest. They were surprised to find that during their short absence, something, apparently a bear, had visited the camp and had rummaged about among their things, scattering the contents of their packs and in sheer wantonness destroying their lean-to. The footprints of the beast were quite plain, but at first they paid no particular heed to them, busying themselves with rebuilding the lean-to, laying out their beds and stores and lighting the fire. While Bauman was making ready supper, it being already dark, his companion began to examine the tracks more closely and soon took a brand from the fire to follow them up where the intruder had walked along a game trail after leaving the camp. When the brand flickered out, he returned and took another, repeating his inspection of the footprints very closely. Coming back to the fire, he stood by it a minute or two, peering out into the darkness, and suddenly remarked, Bauman, 
that bear has been walking on two legs. Bauman laughed at this, but his partner insisted that he was right. And upon again examining the tracks with a torch, they certainly did seem to be made by but two paws or feet. However, it was too dark to make sure. After discussing whether the footprints could possibly be those of a human being and coming to the conclusion that they could not be, the two men rolled up their blankets and went to sleep under the lean-to. At midnight, Bauman was awakened by some noise and sat up in his blankets. As he did so, his nostrils were struck by a strong, wild beast odor, and he caught the loom of a great body in the darkness at the mouth of the lean-to. Grasping his rifle, he fired at the vague, threatening shadow, but must have missed, for immediately afterwards he heard the smashing of the underwood as the thing, whatever it was, rushed off into the impenetrable blackness of the forest and the night. After this, the two men slept but little, sitting up by the rekindled fire, but they heard nothing more. In the morning, they started out to look at the few traps they had set the previous evening and put out new ones. By an unspoken agreement, they kept together all day and returned to the camp towards evening. On nearing it, they saw, hardly to their astonishment, that the lean-to had been again torn down. The visitor of the preceding day had returned and in a wanton malice had tossed about their camp kit and bedding, and destroyed the shanty. The ground was marked up by its tracks, and on leaving the camp it had gone along the soft earth by the brook, where the footprints were as plain as if on snow, and after a careful scrutiny of the trail, it certainly did seem as if whatever the thing was had walked off on but two legs." The men, thoroughly uneasy, gathered a great heap of dead logs and kept up a roaring fire throughout the night, one or the other sitting on guard most of the time. At about midnight, the thing came down through the forest opposite across the brook and stayed there on the hillside for nearly an hour. They could hear the branches crackle as it moved about, and several times it uttered a harsh, grating, long-drawn moan, a peculiarly sinister sound. Yet it did not venture near the fire. In the morning, the two trappers, after discussing the strange events of the last 36 hours, decided that they would shoulder their packs and leave the valley that afternoon. They were more ready to do this because in spite of seeing a good deal of game sign, they had caught very little fur. However, it was necessary first to go along the line of their traps and gather them, and this they started out to do. All the morning they kept together picking up trap after trap, each one empty. On first leaving the camp, they had the disagreeable sensation of being followed. In the dense spruce thickets, they occasionally heard a branch snap after they had passed. And now and then, there were slight rustling noises among the small pines to one side of them. At noon, they were back within a couple of miles of camp. 
In the high, bright sunlight, their fears seemed absurd to the two armed men. Accustomed as they were through long years of lonely wandering in the wilderness to face every kind of danger from man, brute, or element. There were still three beaver traps to collect from a little pond in a wide ravine nearby. Bauman volunteered to gather these and bring them in while his companion went ahead to the camp to make ready the packs. On reaching the pond, Bauman found three beaver in the traps, one of which had been pulled loose and carried into a beaver house. He took several hours in securing and preparing the beaver, and when he started homewards, he marked with some uneasiness how low the sun was getting. As he hurried towards camp under the tall trees, the silence and desolation of the forest weighed on him. His feet made no sound on the pine needles, and the slanting sun's rays striking through amongst the straight trunks made a gray twilight in which objects at a distance glimmered indistinctly. There was nothing to break the ghostly stillness, which, when there is no breeze, always broods over these samba primeval forests. At last he came to the edge of the little glade where the camp lay, shouting as he approached it, but got no answer. The campfire had gone out, though the thin blue smoke was still curling upwards. Near it lay the packs, wrapped and arranged. At first Bauman could see nobody, nor did he receive an answer to his call. Stepping forward, he again shouted, and as he did so, his eye fell on the body of his friend, stretched beside the trunk of a great fallen spruce. Rushing towards it, the horrified trapper found that the body was still warm, but that the neck was broken, while there were four great fang marks in his throat. The footprints of the unknown beast creature printed deep in the soft soil told the whole story. The unfortunate man, having finished his packing, had sat down on the spruce log with his face to the fire and his back to the dense woods to wait for his companion. While thus waiting, his monstrous assailant, which must have been lurking nearby in the woods, waiting for a chance to catch one of the adventurers unprepared, came silently up from behind, walking with long, noiseless steps and seemingly still on two legs. Evidently unheard, it reached a man and broke his neck by wrenching his head back with its forepaws while it buried its teeth in his throat. It It had not eaten the body, but apparently had romped and gambolled around it in uncouth, ferocious glee, occasionally rolling over and over it, and had then fled back into the soundless depths of the woods. Bauman, utterly unnerved, and believing that the creature with which he had to deal with was something either half-human or half-devil, some great goblin beast, abandoned everything but his rifle 
and struck off at speed down the pass, not halting until he reached the beaver meadows where the hobbled ponies were still grazing. Mounting, he rode onwards through the night until far beyond the reach of pursuit. Kev, that is one of the most fantastic tales I think you'll ever read. Yeah, no, and of course I've read it. And, uh, you know, to our audience again, you know, especially newcomers, you know, Bill and I are about 600 miles apart when we record this podcast. And we have like a little bit of a rule where, or not a little bit of a rule, but a rule where generally I don't tell him what I'm going to talk about and he doesn't tell me what he's going to talk about. And it's kind of fun. And in this case, Bill, I had no idea what you were going to talk about. And you said we covered it before, but we did it in reverse. I don't know if you recall, but I covered it in cryptids in the news and other oddities. So this is kind of cool that you did it as an account. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, <coughs> excuse me, I uh, as I'm prone to do, you know, I have some favorite accounts. Uh, and uh, I like to share them maybe like annually. Yeah. Uh, just to bring them out of the closet and use them as a reference point. But, you know, I said before, and I'll say it again, that uh, Teddy Roosevelt actually became one of our presidents here in the United States. And prior to that, uh, he was a rancher and a cowboy out in the Dakotas, South Dakota in particular. Uh, he had joined the Army. He became famous for uh, riding with the, quote, Rough Riders up San Juan Hill in the Spanish-American War. Uh, he then became president when then-President McKinley was assassinated. Uh, he took over the office uh, ran for a second term, became president of uh, the police commission in New York City to with the idea of fighting corruption. And then he actually ran for a third term of president, I think, in uh, 1912. And while he was giving a speech, somebody shot him. And with the bullet still in him, he finished his speech then saying it would take more than that to bring down a big bull. <laughs> and later on, uh, the party was formed called the, uh, what they call that, Kev? The Bull Moose Party. Yeah, and he be. was I don't recall. Yeah, he was defeated in that uh, election. But this guy was a man's man, hunter, cowpoke, cowboy, and... I said to Kevin when we first did this and discussed this, there is no way he includes this story in his book unless he fully believed it and believed what Bauman had told him. Yeah, I mean, absolute great outdoorsman, war hero, and president. And, you know, for those of you that haven't seen the book, The Wilderness Hunter, you can buy the modern version of it. You know, it's hard to find a copy like my brother has. I have a modern version. My brother has one of the original versions, which I keep looking for them, but they're just too expensive. Um, but it really is a book, uh, kind of like an encyclopedia of 
all of the things that he discovered in uh, the outdoors, you know, whether it be uh, the massive herds of buffalo out west and things like that. But it's, you know, very much a nonfiction book. Um, that's why I use the encyclopedia reference. So the fact that he has this account in there of these goblins, you know, and talks about Bauman's account of them, uh, how it gambled around the dead body, you know, like, holy cow, like, you know, yeah, it sounds like a horror story, but it's in a nonfiction book. That's right. And the book I have, as I say, was written in the late 1800s. And if you think about some of the data, Kev, that he put forth uh, in this reading relative to today's knowledge of the Bigfoot, how about it staying near the camp up on the hillside and letting out these howls? Yes. And the sneaking around and the breaking of branches, the snapping of twigs, or staying outside of the firelight. Yeah, the stealthy behavior, right? I mean, right. And then the stench. Yeah. The stench that he records. Bauman is saying that the thing smelled hideous. Uh, all of this uh, really is a predecessor to what it is we now hear in latter-day investigations some 120, 140 years Later, And we don't know. We know the book was written uh, in the late 1800s. Roosevelt actually wrote three books. We don't know when Bauman's account was from. Yeah, I remember when I covered it, I think they said it was at least 50 or 60 years or 50 years, I want to say, before the book was published, that the account had happened. So that's got to be, you know, like but they 18... don't know for sure. Yeah. Right. Let's just say 1820, 1830. Yeah. And, you know, Roosevelt was then uh, very instrumental in protecting the wildernesses and the national parks, uh, what became the national parks in the United States. He had a great reverence uh, and a belief that what he had lived in and what he had seen and what was out there really needed to be protected going into the future. Oh, Thank no God he it. did. He had the vision. That's right. You know, and folks, if you haven't been to some of these places where he walked into them, you know, places like Yosemite, and was like, okay, this is otherworldly. Like, we can't let anything happen to this, even back then. Now, yeah. today, when you walk into Yosemite, which I've camped there below Yosemite Falls, one of the most beautiful places on earth, period. Mm -hmm. But today, it's easy to walk in there and say, okay, we have to protect us. But back then, he was probably one of the few, you know, non-First uh, Nations people that walked in there and saw it. And he knew to protect it. Yeah. So And, yeah. Fought, and fought to protect it. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. You know, and to me... There are always men uh, and women who rise to the forefront. Like, take W.J. Sheehan, who wrote all the Bigfoot books. <laughs> <laughs> Look at it. I mean, hundreds of, year in the hundreds of years in the future, people are saying, always carry more gun than you think you're going to need. Yeah, as they pull out their laser. 
Awesome. Awesome. I didn't know where you were going to go, Bill, but that is a fantastic account. And I love the fact that you broke out, you know, that old version of the book that you have and uh, read it right from it. That's awesome. Yeah, you know, and I love I love this old book, Kev, because uh, the cover is off of it. I mean, I keep it on it, but it's detached. And the paper in the book uh, is kind of... I mean, it was made this way. This didn't happen over time. I could tell that the paper is kind of rough at the edges. Yeah, no, and it's got all those images in it, too. Fantastic, like... Fantastic plate, stuff. Plates of photographs and paintings in black and white. Yeah. Uh, every so often. I mean, it just... It's an incredible, I think incredible of that one book. image, you know, I don't have the book handy here, so I haven't looked at it in a while, but that one image of all of the bison bones, right? Yeah. The pile, that's like a mountain. Yeah. Out west yeah. where he talks about the decimation of the bison. It's like, yeah. I never saw a photograph like that until I opened up this book. Well, and you know, uh, that's one of the reasons uh, why the Indians had such a gripe with the white man. Of course. Because the Indians would lay hands on a bison when it was killed. And thank God for the meat. Yeah. Never and eat, f- eat and use every bit of it. Right, the horns and the skin and the fur, everything was a blessing to them. And uh, they had a tremendous reverence and respect for the animal. Whereas the white man just came in and said, hey, ho, let's go, and started gunning them down and selling stuff, you know, leaving them to rot uh, on the plains, you know, and just taking what they wanted, you know? Yeah, exactly. So it was a crying shame, but... uh, the Bauman Encounter, man. Yeah, this, it's awesome. I didn't nothing. again. I didn't know where you were going to go. Fantastic, and I love the fact that we covered it kind of upside down this time around, even accidentally. Yeah, Very well, cool. again, if you choose to think now, if you choose to think that this was a story, then it would be kind of weird uh, for President Roosevelt to have known all of these details of. Bigfoot encounters, having never encountered one. Yeah, not not kind of weird, Bill. Just completely out of place. It doesn't yeah. doesn't make sense if he thought it was fake. That's right. That's and right. For him and, not to think it was fake, he would have had to have some other encounter, whether he wrote about it or not. You know, that's obviously correct. he didn't write about it, as far as we know. Yeah, yeah. No, that's correct. No, and who knows? Awesome. Good stuff. We can't talk. We can't talk to him, so we don't know what he may have actually seen. No. Yeah, you know. So that's awesome. it, bro. What great stuff, Bill. What do you got in a bag of tricks as far yeah. as listener mail goes? Yeah, we got some good listener mail. So the first uh, letter that comes in comes from Rick, and Rick, uh, his subject is Blue UFO Hawaii. Okay. So Rick's writing in about uh, one of our episodes a few weeks ago where we talked about the uh, news event, current news event. I think it was December 28th was when the sighting was, but I'm going by memory here, that that saw and videotaped uh, the the UFO uh, or UFOs over Hawaii that night, which is pretty cool. Um, and he writes in, Rick writes in, I have a friend 
who is a high-level MUFON, which is Mutual UFO Network, official. So he has a strong interest in that subject. We talked about the Blue Hawaii UFO briefly a few days ago. He said there's a guy on Oahu, the island of Oahu, who flies a blue-lighted parasail over the beach in the evenings. This sighting was nothing more than that. And if you look at the photos with this in mind, the filmed object has some of the same shape as a parasail and the same ribbing between several segments. Problem solved. Rick. (laughs) (laughs) So, Rick, I agree. When I look at the imagery, uh, and before I saw your letter, when I looked at some of the frames of the imagery, which I have posted already to BigfootTerrorInTheWoods.com, it looks a little bit like a lit-up blue parasail. But I don't know how it disappeared over the horizon into the ocean without somebody dying and never to fly again. And then don't forget... (laughs) Don't forget that they saw a white one coming the other way uh, off of the ocean. So it could be, but, and I appreciate your feedback 1,000%, but I'm not quite sold yet. Yeah, and uh, I went back and forth a little bit with Rick on this one via email. Okay. And I said the same thing. Uh, A parasailer isn't going to disappear out over the Pacific horizon off Oahu and appear to go down into the ocean unless he died. Well, yeah, and it's it's a, not really a parasail. I guess it's a paraglider where you have the motor on it. So yeah. you probably hear it, too. Well, you definitely hear some whining. Those things have that, uh, what's that engine called, a wankle? I don't even know what they have. Yeah, a lot of them use that little, uh, it's like an opposing two-cylinder or something, Kev, with the big prop behind them. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's kind of like the, uh, for lack of a better description, like the Subaru boxer motor or the okay. Porsche boxer engine. Okay. Uh, and, you know, when they're running, they're making some noise. I don't know what you would hear on an island with surf on the shore and whatnot. At yeah, fair s- enough. But I don't think he's flying around at 10,000 feet either at night over uh, yeah. Oahu. I mean, Oahu, for those of you that haven't been there, it's like Manhattan of Hawaii. Like, you know. It's a very populated island. Yeah. Yeah, I I don't know. I, I have yeah. I have to bow out gracefully and no, just say no, it's cool. And we really yeah. appreciate the feedback and I'm not I'm not dismissing it. I may sound like I'm dismissing it, Rick, but I'm like, I don't know, they saw the white one too and the police were there and if this guy's flying around Oahu, wouldn't you think the police would say, Oh, that's that guy with the parasailer? I would think. Uh, yeah, like somebody would have come out after the posting, right? Right. Uh, well, you know, it's it's really neither here nor there. It's right. there for but speculation. But I do respect the MUFON folks. I mean, you know, they're spending a good part of their uh, time investigating these uh, UFOs, right? So good stuff. Absolutely. No, we appreciate them. Yeah. Wow, that's All interesting. Right. So our next one comes from Fred. And Fred is talking about the Patterson-Gimlin episode that we did, again, Hmm. a few weeks back. Is this Fred Flintstone? (laughs) No, you know, we don't give last names, Bill, (laughs) even if their last name is Flintstone. Okay. (laughs) And they work at the rock quarry for Mr. Slate (laughs) and have a pet named Dino. (laughs) 
<laughs> I love that but stuff. Fred writes, hey, guys, I love your show. I was just listening to your recent one, and you mentioned that they don't know what kind of camera Roger Patterson was using. Hmm. He says they do. Below is, below is a link to a paper written by uh, Dr. Jeff Meldrum, who we have a lot of respect for, and he puts in parentheses, one of the few academics that will touch the subject, and William Munns. William is a makeup and costume expert. He worked on The Swamp Thing, Beastmaster, and Return of the Living Dead. <laughs> Classics. And he writes, it is a great paper. William has also written an entire book, breaking down how it could not be a costume. The book is called When Roger Met Patty. Hmm. Keep up the awesome podcasts. Yeah, that's really interesting, you know. It's awesome, yeah. Uh, And so there you have this fellow named Munn, costume designer, makeup man, whatever he was. Again, refuting... It's funny how people take up the guard and say, I'm going to defend this thing. These people are don't know what they're talking about, you know? Yeah. Uh, for every person or 10 that say, eh, it's a, some jamoke in a suit, thank God there's people out there uh, who are willing to say, you don't know what you're saying. Uh, this is not a man in a suit, no, and, and this by is the way, what? like I, I don't know if you've seen the videos I put up yet, Bill, on Bigfoot Terror and Woods.com on this episode. I put up some cool videos, so if you haven't been there to check it out under the Patterson Gimlin episode, uh, mm-hmm. it's it's some good stuff, unedited interview with uh, Gimlin. Um, you know, some some various folks that did some analysis of the imagery and stuff. Pretty mm-hmm. cool. Whether you believe or not, take a look at the video. Yeah, no, it's it, it's excellent. I mean, you know, Kev, you know uh, my feelings. Nobody's got to convince me otherwise. Yeah. Uh, I'll argue the point, uh, you know, to no end. Uh, that was a living creature, and uh, yeah, it I really know. doesn't matter to me what anyone else thinks. Right. It's pretty cool. Yeah, excellent. Awesome. And our last letter, Bill, is a good one. It includes an encounter. It comes from Daniel from Washington State. And Daniel writes, Hola, mis amigos. Kevin and Bill. Hello, my fellow Creepfest friends. (laughs) (laughs) My name is Daniel, and I'm writing you from Washington State. Uh First, I want to thank you for your wonderful podcast. I've been listening since the very beginning. And oh my, how the podcast has grown and improved. <laughs> thank you, Daniel. And we sure have. Boy, it's hard to listen to those early episodes. You're doing a great job. And I really appreciate y'all. I think he put y'all in there for me. Taking y'all. the time out of your busy <laughs> lives to give all us listeners, an escape from our everyday toil. And I always crack up when I hear Bill doing the English accents. Awesome. Thank you. Oh, you do, do you? I was going to say, you might have to give him a little Liverpool. Yeah, about a little bit of this, buddy boy. (laughs) And then he writes, by the way, Bill, if you need help in reaching a monthly quota on how many books you need, you need to mail out what you, how many books you need to mail out for the month. I will attach my address below. <laughs> 
Tight wad. <laughs> I'm like, Daniel, I don't even have an autographed copy yet. Come on. And Jim, said, you know what? Because, oh, I, because I recently heard you saying that if you see something, say something. I want to tell you about an experience that I personally had in August of 2019. Uh-huh. I've only told a few people. And this is the first and only time that I've experienced something that I would call otherworldly in my 42 years. I'm a landscaper by trade. This particular day, I was sitting in the passenger seat of our work truck and a co-worker driving and another co-worker sitting in the back. We were in the area of Seattle, Washington that day, driving to our next job site. This was not downtown Seattle. We were a few miles outside the city, but still in Seattle proper. We were just getting off of I-5 freeway, exit 173 to be exact, going southbound. As we rounded the off-ramp, about 20 yards directly in front of us was a little clearing with some small trees and brush. It was a warm August day, and I had my window down. As we were slowing down to round a small corner on the off-ramp, that is when I saw the strangest thing that I have ever seen. It seemed to be moving to its left. It looked like a man that was wrapped in saran wrap and transparent at the same time as it was visible. It was exactly like the creature in the movie The Predator. Arnold. It did not seem to be any bigger than a regular human being. I was leaning back in the passenger seat as I saw this thing. I immediately sat up and shouted, Oh my God, do you see that thing? To my coworker that was driving. As I turned to look at him to see if he was looking, I turned back again to the figure and it had either completely vanished or I'd lost sight of it no matter how hard I looked. To write this out in an email does not do justice to the way that it had made me feel. It was a very quick encounter, but it was something that I will never forget. I have no idea of what it could have been. I assumed to think that it was either something out of this world or our military had some pretty amazing secret abilities. But why in the world would this thing in be in the area of where I saw it. Afterwards, doing some searching, I've learned that many people have seen or experienced this phenomena. Many people are calling this thing the Glimmer Man. Hmm. Many have seen this figure in the woods, and it has been associated with the big guy. I'm not sure of what I saw, but it has made a significant impact on my life. Like I said earlier... I've never seen anything paranormal or highly strange or what I would consider otherworldly. But after seeing this glimmer man or predator figure, I know that there are things in this universe that for the time being, we just cannot comprehend. Again, I want to thank you for your great podcast. Using my name and info is fine with me. By the way, Bill, hablas espanol. And he writes that his his wife is Hispanic and comes from Mexico and that his father comes from Mexico as well. But he never learned Spanish until uh, after he was married. Uh, 
And he also writes that I am also a Christian. I'm glad that you share your beliefs and convictions. So I will wish you a blessed day and may the Lord Jesus Christ grant you the peace that surpasses all understanding. Thanks, guys. Daniel, and thank you, Daniel, especially for the blessing. Amen. Yeah, you know, and it's funny, Kev, because when he started talking about thanks for the creep fest, you know what I started thinking about? What? Do you remember when Eddie Munster <laughs> ent- entered the I Like Zombo Because contest? <laughs> Not until you mention it now. Okay, yeah. and it was that creepy-looking guy on TV, and Eddie won a chance to be on his show. <laughs> and when he got to the studio, he was like, where's Zombo? And the guy was like, I'm Zombo, kid. I, I just got to get made up. So, you know, if you'll sit over there for a few minutes. <laughs> he got so aggravated that Zombo wasn't real, he started tearing up the studio. Do you remember yeah, that? I do. I do. <laughs> Zombo's not real. It's a classic. Classic. It is classic. And speaking of classics... If you find yourself wandering around in the woods or encountering the Glimmer Man, remember just one thing. Always carry more gun than you think you're going to need. Sleep tight. I'm going to hit the stop button. (laughs) I had the book on my mouse pad. Stop. Stop.